We are, for two weeks now, uh, this week and next week, going to be talking about what we normally do at the start of this year. What is the mission of Pennington AG Church? We are diverse people from different backgrounds, ethnicities, locations, and identities. What makes us one community? It's Jesus Christ, but yeah, there are churches all over the world that have existed for thousands of years. What has God brought us together for? What's our purpose here in Pennington and Mercer County? And we do believe that that is leading people to Jesus. The obvious we'll talk about next week, leading those who don't have a relationship with Jesus into his presence to know him and be known by him. But today we'll talk about the other side of that coin. What does it mean that we have the opportunity as followers of Jesus to be leading each other deeper into his presence? And so I'll be talking about what that means and what that looks like. But our main point we will revisit multiple times today is that being led to Jesus is a lifelong process of communal and individual choices. It's not one moment that happens here at an altar alone. It's not one conversation. It's not growing up as a child. It's not finding maturity and then I'm good. It is a continual process from the moment we first hear the name of Jesus to the moment we close our eyes on this earth and open them into eternity. It is a process of both individual choices and communal choices we make together. It's a new year, and as my brother-in-law, Dr. Zeefel, shared last year, it's a time of new beginnings, of starting new activities, starting new habits, discovering new patterns God has for us. It's also that time of year we look back and reflect on last year, our choices we made last year, the things we began last year in January, some of which maybe we continued on with, some of which maybe we kept paying that gym membership even though we never went. Whatever that habit or pattern was, we take a moment and we reflect. How did that work out? What did it look like? I'm grateful for new technologies and some of the things that they offered to us. And one of kind of the surprising discoveries this last week was my wife Caitlin and I just sat and went through her Google Photos of this last year. I didn't actually even think that it would be as significant of a process or exercise as it was, but we spent 30 to almost 45 minutes going through from January to December what 22 looked like through which photos we took. And it reminded me of so many more blessings than I thought I had in 2022, seeing the travels we got to go to, the family we got to spend time with in Florida, in Boston, in Seattle, and spending time with them throughout the year and getting to discover and have fun with them. How far we traveled, even in a year where we'd said in the beginning, this is going to be a low-key year and we're not going to travel too much, even seeing the opportunities we were given how many projects we were able to spend working on the house that the church blesses us to live in, redoing the entire ceiling for an entire month in June of this year, having the roof replaced, seeing the space we live in gradually transformed. We bought two new, new to us, vehicles in this last year. We had only planned to purchase one, but God provided opportunities for us to change the vehicles we have and got to see so many pictures with new and old friends in 2022 as we came back into community again after about 18 months of isolation off and on, seeing pictures with church members, kids' church, summer activities, our family. I didn't get to spend 
as much time with my nephews and nieces in any of the years previous that I did in this year, and the photos played it out. Without the help of Google and that time of reflection, I'm not sure I would have seen 2022 as a productive year as it was that God turned our eyes to be grateful. It's also a time to assess who we are and where we're growing as people or where we're growing as followers of Jesus. How do we assess our growth, our spiritual growth? How do we assess it? How do we evaluate it? There weren't a lot of pictures Caitlin took of me reading my Bible or me praying quietly in the other room or me during worship here or me serving anywhere. That just doesn't really happen in the same way, shape, or form. And so how do we reflect back on what God has been doing in our lives in the last year? How do we need to be growing in Jesus? How do we get led more into His presence? What does that even mean? I want to give some examples of what it looks like, though, when we're not growing, when we're stagnant and not growing into who God has called us to be. We are meant to be icons. It's literally what the Hebrew word translates to in Genesis. God has created us to be icons. We represent Him here on earth. He's made us in His image, and we represent His goodness and His character to the world. So what do we represent? How clear are we of that? I wanted to give a couple examples of when the icon, the art, the picture doesn't clearly represent. I'll give a a couple of them. This first one here, just throw them up. Uh, On the right uh, is one of the most attractive footballers, soccer players in the world, everyone has said. On the other side is a statue someone made of him, clearly not representing very clearly. Throw up the next one. This is, oh, no, you're getting ahead. Throw up the statue of, uh, nope, go back. Oh, is that the only one of there in there? Oh, okay. Well, I wasn't clear enough in how I communicated my slides. Okay, so this is a statue misrepresenting the person it is of. You can go to the next one now. So if you're a little more brainy, this is, uh, you might represent or know what this this picture represents. It is Plato's allegory of the cave. So if you've studied an undergraduate, someone made you read this and study this at some point, the story being a bunch of people trapped in a cave and they see shadows on the cave wall and they worship and that's their full entertainment. They look at the shadows. That's the best there possibly is. One day, one of them escapes walks out, sees that people are creating these shadows. It's them living their life. It's the fire in the cave and the shadows being put on the wall. They walk further and see if they get out of the cave that there's a whole wide world to live in. And they come back and try to communicate to those who have never left the cave, who only have lived their lives according to shadows, the beauty of the world outside. And in Plato's story, they can't wrap their heads around it. They can't comprehend it. And they reject the more beautiful life He has planned for them. They'd rather live in darkness and in shadow. Third one, toss it up there. This is maybe the most apt example. If we're not growing, if we're not seeking God to be moving in our life, you can think of it, and Scripture gives us examples of stagnant water. If there's no movement, if there's no fresh outpouring, if there's no pouring out on the other side, it becomes stagnant. The water becomes full of bacteria. It's not good to feed or to hydrate anybody It becomes a pool of death and decay. In this time of year, we can ask ourselves the questions, 
Am I a statue that represents Christ? Do I look anything like Him, or am I a failed statue of Ronaldo that people see and are just kind of like, what is that? Are we living according to shadows only, or are we continually pursuing greater beauty and life that Christ has? And then, are we streams of living water? Is God pouring new life into us? Is life being poured out of us, or are we stagnant? There's a technical term for this that theologians and the church throughout history has called sanctification. Sanctification, fancy word for being defined as the process of becoming more like Jesus in attitude and action. That's it. The process of becoming more like Jesus in how we think and how we feel and how we treat others and how we treat God in our actions of our life. This is the call of every Christian, of every follower of Jesus, to be growing more like Him, to be putting on more of His attitude, to be seeing what Jesus saw, to do what He did, to feel how He felt. And then we use a fancy term that you're probably more familiar with because we use this a lot here, spiritual formation. It's the more buzzy word of the last decade or so. Spiritual formation is merely the tools we give to help in our sanctification. What are the rituals, what are the habits, the practices that form us to be more like Jesus in our attitudes and in our actions? But before we kind of dive into how we do this and what this looks like, I think we first need to define what are the attitudes and actions of Jesus like? What did He do? What was He like? What is He like? How is He working and calling us? And I'll define it briefly. I spent a really long time on this, probably too long, in the last week of going back, reading, and studying what did Jesus' actions and attitudes look like. And we'll shorten them into what Jesus says in Matthew 22, framed around loving God and loving others. That his personhood and his activities were framed as loving God and loving others. In Jesus' attitudes towards loving God, I pulled it into four things that we see Jesus regularly do with God, receive from God, express back to Him. And the first is that Jesus was always confident in His value and His worthiness of love. Always confident in it. Whether it's in the beginning of the Gospels of John being baptized, rising up, and His Father saying, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. Or whether it's Jesus entering into a room of people accusing Him of working with Satan and being demon-possessed, yet still showing grace and love. He is confident in who He is. And who He is is someone made in the image of His Father, fully knowing the love and value God has put into Him. He operates and He works out of this in every aspect of His life. If I'm putting on the attitude of Jesus, first and foremost, I want to put on the attitude that I am confident that my Creator loves and values me, that I am confident that I, myself, Brian, am worthy of love and affection, and that the Creator of all things gives it to me willingly and generously, not because of anything I have done, but because of what Christ Jesus has done for me and in me. The second thing we see Jesus do is He finds peace in time spent with God. Whether it's in the morning, or whether it's in the evening, or whether it's midday, Jesus continually is pulling Himself aside and listening to the voice of His Father. I think there are elitists who like to say that Jesus 
only spent time in the morning and that we need to get up early and spend time with God. Sure, I desperately try to do that. I am not a morning person, but let's be honest. He spent time in the afternoon. He spent time in the evening. The most famous time we have of him is him praying all night, okay? Everybody, all you early birds, he didn't go to sleep at all. He prayed all night. So if I'm doing that and I'm sleepy in the morning, I'm just acting like Jesus, okay? If I don't like mornings, I'm putting on Christ. He is in his times of silence and solitude, finding peace, speaking with God. He is able to slow down. He is able to disconnect from the community and the bustle and hustle around him. And in silence and solitude, find peace by speaking with and hearing his father. Third, he studies and applies God's recorded word. He is a master of scripture. He battles with Satan himself over a sword drill of referencing scriptures and pulling back and forth on them. In Luke 4, 14 through 30, he battles Satan over who knows scripture better and how better to apply it. In Luke 4, 1 through 11, he battles Satan. In Luke 4, 14 through 30, he gets up and preaches a sermon out of Isaiah and teaches people for the first time they don't know him. He takes the text and applies it in a way that almost causes a riot. He knows Scripture so well. And then finally, on the road to Emmaus, the resurrected Jesus takes two disciples on a tour of the Old Testament and reapplies it through the resurrection and what it means that Christ is at the center of all of it. He knows all of this because he studied Scripture day in and day out. He knew God's word and valued it and was able to apply it. Fourth, and maybe most powerfully, he simply walks in his calling. He knows who he is and he walks according to how God has made him. He says this multiple times. He said, I have to be about my father's will. He's made my life with a plan and a purpose, and I have to be about that plan and purpose. He says that as a 12-year-old boy to his parents. I have to be about my father's will. He says this as an adult to his disciples, telling him to preserve his own life. He says, no, I have to be about my father's will. He does this as the resurrected Christ, revealing God's mission and plan. He says, this is the calling in which I am made. His calling looks like multiple things. He lives simply says the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He stewards creation well. He feeds. He heals. He provides. He conquers storms. He connects with the world God has made him in, and he reveals how it should be. And then he preaches the gospel, not just standing up here on a stage and reading Scripture. He declares that there is good news for all mankind, for all humanity that there is good news that the kingdom is coming and justice will be brought and care and mercy will be given and love and affection from the Father will be poured out through him. He has confidence in his value and his worthiness of love. He finds peace in his time spent talking with the Father. He studies and applies God's recorded word. For him, it was the Old Testament. We have both Jesus' life and his followers' thoughts and feelings and reflections on him as well as the Old Testament. And he walks according to his calling. That's how he loved God. We see then Jesus loving others out of that. And the first way he loves others is the same as the end of him loving God. He walks in his calling. He walks in his calling of serving and loving others. John 3.16, 
He says, I have come to show that God has loved the world and he has given new life through me. He walks in that calling of loving others well. Second, he spends time in community. A great theologian says this about the Gospel of Luke. In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus does nothing else in that Gospel more than he does eating food around tables with people. And that the Gospel of Luke can be told as a story of Jesus either on his way to a dinner, eating a dinner, or on his way from a dinner. He spends his entire time in Luke with people, sharing life together with people, sharing meals together with people. He lives in deep, connected community. Third, he meets the needs of those around him. He is aware of the needs of those around him. He takes action to provide for the needs of those around him. Whether those needs are physical, as Mark 1, 29 through 34, he heals Peter's mother-in-law, and then she's able to host a party, but he heals her first. Two, emotional. In Matthew eleven twenty eight, he heals the emotions. He binds up the brokenhearted. He is gentle and lowly and calls us to bring the fullness of our emotions and pain to him. And third, he heals the spiritual needs of people around him. The dramatic story in Mark of him casting a legion of demons out of a man tormented through the spirits working in and on him. And then fourth, in loving others, he advocates for justice and mercy. He doesn't settle on the brokenness of the world. He doesn't just declare that the world is broken. He advocates. He confronts powers. He creates a cord of whips and drives out money changers, taking advantage of vulnerable people coming before God's presence. He declares that he is the one who will tear down systems of pain and brokenness and will care and bind up the wounds of those who have been abused. And fifth, he gives sacrificially. He just gives of himself, fully of himself. He says, what greater gift than to lay down your life for your friends? And you will see me do this as I lay down my life for those I care about. It's a lot of things. I know that's a lot of things. I spent a long time proof texting like crazy on this. And so what I'll do is uh, tomorrow, I'll just send an email out with this little list in here and all my proof texts. You can look it over, pray through it, discuss it together. And if you find something about Jesus that I didn't cover, you can email me or DM me or text me as well. But that is the life of Jesus. And we can just sum it by saying Jesus was competent and confident in clearly loving God and receiving the love God had for him. And he was active and complete in loving the people around him God had given him to love and care for. How do we as followers of Jesus grow in that? I want to come back to our main point. Being led to Jesus is a lifelong process of communal and individual choices. These formational choices and practices that either lead us more into Jesus' presence or lead us away. I've been aware of this last year, my own struggle to grow. I'm 37 and been following Jesus a long time, been serving in active ministry full-time for a long time. And I think 2022 was a year acutely reminding me that I still have a long way to go in growth and knowledge and relationship with Jesus. I'll give you a silly example and then a more serious one. Uh, I play pickleball. I talk about that way too much from the pulpit. Um, But in it this year, I hadn't played for about three years and came back to playing again. And I came to a park where people were playing 
And again, I'm 37 years old. I'm a full adult with lots of relationships and knowing Jesus' love in my life. And I came and you have to invite yourself into a game. And I honestly, for a moment, felt like I was back in middle school with my tray of food, not knowing which table I could sit at. Are they going to let me sit there? Are they going to like me? Am I good enough? Am I, am, will I impress anybody with my ability to hit a wiffle ball over a net with a ping pong paddle? And this weird feeling of insecurity. And I actually drove home being reminded again of like, oh, I still have work to do in every aspect of who I am to know that I'm secure in the love that God has given to me through Christ Jesus. Even a stupid example like that. What do I care how they feel or think about me in a sport or a competition? I am fully loved and valued by the God who's made me. The second more serious one is this is a year where Kate and I in conversation talked about that it's probably a time for me to go and see a Christian counselor that throughout the last few years of pandemic and church and leading and health and family to see that, well, I need to sit and ask someone who can help me sort all of this out. I still have room to grow and I need someone at this point in my life who can come alongside of me to help me grow and see what Jesus is doing in the areas I am unable to see it now and have them help me see and find and take the actions of becoming more like Jesus and recognizing where Brian still needs to be turned over to God's hands. The realization that I am a work in progress and also that my individual choices don't just affect me, but they affect the community of Christ that he's brought around us. Our growth towards Jesus, our progress of being led deeper into his presence has a communal effect not sure what your year-end reflections have been, whether you're working on yourself or reflecting, or what every year-end reflection helped you with, whether it was the Spotify most played list that you went and shared with all of us on Instagram, or whether it was your Goodreads challenge. Did you hit it or did you not hit it this year? Did you complete a Bible reading plan or reconnect with family or friends this year? Did you take time to assess where your spiritual health is at? Do we take time to assess what Christ is doing in and through us? What decisions, communal and individual, have we been making that are leading us and those around us towards Jesus? Does anybody know, and this is, uh, I'm asking you uh, rhetorically, what the largest organism in the world is? It's not an elephant, it's not the blue whale. And this is often debated, but largely people come with, toss that image up there. This is people and scientists consider the largest organism in the world. This is a grove of aspen trees in Utah. And these trees are not actually considered a grove of trees. It's one organism. And scientists say it's better defined not as a forest filled with trees, but one tree that's growing underground and shooting its branches up. It's one organism spread out over acres and acres of land in Utah. And they theorize that this organism is both the heaviest thing on earth and perhaps one of the oldest organisms as well, as it's been spreading and growing and growing for thousands of years. How old is it? How big is it? Scientists don't really even know. It is one organism expressed as a communal image. You look and you say, well, that's a, that's a bunch of trees. 
You see a picture from further, you say, well, that's a forest of trees. But it's an interconnected organism of life. What the Gospels, what the Scriptures tell us is a complex story of interconnected human beings, interdependent on each other, affecting each other, feeding and pulling from each other. And that Christ Jesus even uses this illustration. He says, you, I am the aspen tree organiz, organism. You are the branches I'm shooting up through the dirt. I am the life that is filling you. You are each individual expressions of who I am and what I am doing. Many of us want to be a part of something great. I know that some church members even will say that to me. Like, I want to know what the vision is, what we are doing that is great. But often we struggle to see our own part in that work. What am I bringing into this organization that is moving us forward or is pulling us back? Where am I bringing more love into this community? And where am I bringing more isolation? Most of us are working through anxiety and anger. It's true, and the internet and social media world rewards us for being anxious and angry. It's continually working on us to make us more anxious, to make us more angry. It's reminding us of every broken thing that's happening in the world all at once, a million times, for eight billion people being shoved into our brains. It's reminding us of every area of division and controversy because the more comments it gets, the more rewarded and views it has. It's training us to be anxious and angry. Hundreds of times a day, we make micro decisions to pick up our phone and to receive another dose of anxiety and anger. I can see it, and I see it in church community. We struggle in these last few years with three things. We struggle to linger together. We struggle to just move slowly, to end service without a concrete plan of where I'm going and moving quick, to just linger. We literally, I'll give you behind-the-scenes things. In leadership teams and in staff, we often will create little micro-events solely designed to linger. Coffee, donuts, things outside, cookies afterwards, just so that as a church body, we linger for another 10 or 15 minutes. And you might get to know someone or know someone else or have an opportunity to pray with somebody or hear someone else's burdens or have yours heard. We struggle to work through difficult, divisive problems. We may disagree on a perspective of Congress, disagree on a perspective of life and where it begins and where it ends. We may disagree on an interpretation of sexuality and how to read Scripture on it, but rather than working it out with love and grace, and yeah, sure, frustration in the process, we instead shut down and avoid the painful conversations. Third, we struggle to distinguish ourselves as a kingdom of God made present on this earth by His Spirit with the kingdom of this world. We often look just like the rest of the world. We talk just like the rest of the world. We act just like the rest of the world. How do we distinguish ourselves from it? How do we, as a church body, be led to Jesus as a lifelong process of communal and individual choices? Well, thankfully, in the last half of this sermon, we will see that the early church did give us a pattern. They gave us habits and rituals and practices 
to become more like Jesus? What did Paul, Peter, John, James do to be transformed like Jesus in attitude and action once Jesus left this earth? They gave us a roadmap and a pattern. Let's see what Scripture says. What does Paul write in Philippians? So the church in Philippi, Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. He says, Dear friends, you have always followed my instructions when I was with you. And now that I am away, it is even more important. Work hard to show the results of your salvation, obeying God with deep reverence and fear, for God is working in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases Him. Paul is saying to the church in Philippians, oftentimes people say this is probably one of Paul's favorite churches. He doesn't actually yell at the church in Philippians at all like he does in the other letters to the Corinthians or to the Ephesians. He's really loving and enjoying this church. And he says to them, while I'm not with you, work hard to show the results of Christ Jesus' work in your life. Not that you're proving anything, but that you are growing in his expression, that you're transforming this world. Obey God with reverence and fear. Work it out in you that he will give you the desires and the power to do the good things of this world. What are the practices that support this? I believe there are five that Scripture gives us. The first, communal celebration. The first maybe a best place to start is the tool that they have given us, communal celebration. Communal celebration specifically of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. When we sing at the beginning of service, the first 20 to 30 minutes of service, certain churches are at an hour, when we are singing together, that is not necessarily our act of worship. Paul says in Romans 12, your act of worship is what you do when you leave this place. Your choices, your actions, how you treat people, how you live with integrity. It is our physical act of worship as an act of celebration. It is together again, reminding each other, declaring to each other, celebrating over each other who we are in Christ Jesus. We are humans, and humans very quickly forget who they are. We regularly forget who we are. Or as the old parable says, we look at a mirror, look away from it, and forget our own face. In communal celebration, we are reminding ourselves who we are. As we sing those songs, we're being reminded of who we are by who our God is and what Christ Jesus has done. We sung Great Are You, Lord, this morning, and it always transforms me back to a moment eight years ago when I was a younger pastor and went to a conference in Park City, Utah with other pastors. It was a small meeting of about 40 of us from all over the country who all we had in common was that we were ministers in the same denomination of the Assemblies of God and we were under the age of 40. That was it. Came together and had a whole retreat in a small hotel conference room in Park City, Utah. I didn't know any of these people coming into it. And since leaving, we have gone and totally different directions all over where our careers, life, and theology even has been. But I remember singing that song that it is God Himself who puts breath into our lungs. He is breathing and working through us. And I remember singing that in a small room with 40 other ministers and together saying, yeah, this is what binds us. 
This is what we identify in. We believe that in this world we were made on purpose. We believe that it is God's animating, moving work that gives us life. And it is His goodness and love that is working through us to make more goodness and love in this world. And the best way we know that is through Christ Jesus, His example, His life, His death, and His resurrection. And I can still think back to that moment and say, yeah, in that moment, I was bound together with those other people declaring that when we do this every Sunday, it is a group declaration and reminder again of who we are through communal celebration. Our songs, our testimonies, and even our preaching of the word communally are acts of this celebration and this reminder of who we are. This is why the author of Hebrews says, don't abandon meeting together as some are in the habit of. Hebrews 10, 29. Or as Paul says in Ephesians 5, 19, he says, go forth singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs among yourselves, making music to the Lord in your hearts, celebrating and singing the goodness of who he is. So communal celebration. Second, communal study. Communal study. Study of scripture. Study of God's word. Study of who he is. Scripture, theology, and practice. In Acts chapter 2, verse 42, it says, All the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper and prayer. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, which was literally just people's preaching of the gospel and taking the Old Testament and showing how it connected to Jesus, and they would tell each other about it, share it to each other. These correspondents of Paul, these letters we have that we consider Scripture, are originally correspondence back and forth about what Christ is doing and how they're living it out and how it applies through the Old Testament. They're studying it. They're arguing over it. They're working it out together. God has made us and calls us to communally study his word, to study his scriptures. We do this in small groups. We do this in other Bible studies, midweek formations. We do this in study. And I want to encourage you to be studying scripture together. In isolation, I may and can often be wrong about how I'm interpreting a passage. In community, God is leading us together in greater strength and direction. And study more than just Scripture. There is a plethora, an abundance of Christian men and women for 2,000 years who have written on, reflected on, heard, and struggled with the same Jesus we are following. And they have written books and preached sermons and built theologies that we can study together. God's story is big and long, and it needs to be explored. We grow in the exploration of what God has done already. Third, communal intercession. Prayer, listening, loss, longing. Coming together and sharing our burdens with each other. Listening to God communally. James chapter 5, verse 16, the brother of Jesus writes, Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The earnest prayer of a righteous person has great power and produces wonderful results. I've struggled with prayer for many years. It's been probably the biggest struggle of mine in my communal spiritual formation. Mostly, I think, because growing up, I had a lot of people use prayer sometimes as a weapon. 
as either a weapon to control or an excuse not to do anything. Rather than confess my sins, repent, and take an action, I'll just pray. And so growing up, I was like, well, I don't, I don't know. Until someone told me prayer is the rebellious activity of not settling for the brokenness of the world around us. Prayer is a rebellion. Is a rebellion that, no, I'm not going to settle that cancer kills and destroys. I'm not going to settle on that. I'm not going to settle that war rages and people suffer and struggle. I'm not going to settle on that. I'm not going to settle on the fact that human beings are divisive and hurtful and unforgiving. I'm not going to settle on that. Instead, I will bring it before God and as an act of rebellion, declare that this is not how this world was meant to be. And I will listen to God as he shares with me the way it should be, his plan and his call for this kingdom. And as we do it communally, God shapes us and forms us to be more like his son. The acts of confession and repentance. Sitting in the dust with another church member grieving. Praising with another and excitedly celebrating. So we have celebration, we have study, intercession. Fourth, we have communal support. Simply the work of being together. Time spent together, resources shared, and healing. Hebrews 10.24, as I said, Let us not neglect our meeting together as some people do, but encourage one another, especially now as the day of his return is drawing near. I said 29 before, it's 24. To remind ourselves that we are not alone. It can feel really lonely. I have social media apps that remind me of hundreds of people who are my friend. Uh, I, in college, used to have a rebellious act. Um, As a pastor, I can't do some of the silly things I used to do on my public forums. I am fully aware of that, and that's okay. I've given that up as a knowing part of myself. But I used to, when friends that I hadn't talked to in years would write to me happy birthday on my birthday on my wall on Facebook, I would then publicly post on their walls like, hey, thanks for saying happy birthday. Let's get together soon. Toss me out some dates. And I would do it to like dozens and dozens of people knowing that that would never happen and they didn't really care. Facebook just reminded them that it was my birthday. So they posted something. But it reminds us that while we are aware of a lot of people, it often even makes us more alone. Because their lives look so good, so connected, so well-organized, so beautiful and well-filtered. But that in the church, God has called us to do the painful, messy work of living life together, of sitting with another church member who you may disagree vehemently on what the problem of our electoral process is in this next year. And you may disagree vehemently on whether Marvel movies are cinema or whether they're just brain activities. You may disagree painfully over these things. But to sit and say, because of Christ Jesus, death and resurrection, we are not friends, we are family. And family work these things out. And we grow more like Jesus by pressing into the broken parts of ourselves. We are not alone is two things. One, it means you have others around you. You don't have to bear the burden by yourself. Come together with others. Join a small group. Share your burdens. Let others know when you're struggling, when you're weak. Ask for prayer. Let someone carry the burden alongside of you. But it also means, non-narcissistically, it's not just about you. You're not alone in this. There are others who need you and I and what we bring to the table. We are not alone. We don't bear it alone. We are not alone. We don't get it all to ourselves. 
fifth fifth and final, to share in a communal mission, the mission of sharing, sending, and serving. I tried to alliterate a lot of these. Couldn't do it for all of them, but I was happy with this one. Sharing, sending, and serving. As Philippians chapter 2 verse 2 says, Paul's encouraging them, then make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other, loving one another, and working together with one mind and purpose, that we have a shared purpose together as a church, together as followers of Jesus, that we have really three purposes, to share the good news of Jesus, to share with others that the God who made them has not left them alone, that the God who sees them and knows them is not angry to condemn, but is offering grace and mercy through the Son, to build the kingdom here on earth, to when we say kingdom builders, I know it's a, it's a catchy marketing thing about missions, but it also is true that we can be a part of building a kingdom that is different than this world, a kingdom that gives generously, a kingdom that loves and heals, a kingdom that reaches across the globe in order to share why we are all one and the same because our God has made us and has redeemed us in Christ Jesus. And then third, that in that kingdom, we also fight for justice and mercy, that we care for the brokenhearted, that we feed the hungry, that we care for those who are marginalized and suffering. To be about the mission and movement is to remind us that we're a part of something bigger than us. I can't reach all the way around the globe, but the mission and the gospel of Jesus can. I can't go to Angola, I can't always go to Ecuador, I can't go to Turkey, but the missionary partners we serve as a church can and do, and we get to be connected to that global work. I can't be about something on my own that lasts beyond me. Few people can. A dozen people or so every generation build something that is remembered for generations to come, but being a part of the church means we get to be a part of something that is building for generations to come a redemptive work of transforming this world. So the early church has given us these five sort of frameworks, communal celebration, communal study, communal prayer and intercession, communal support of one another, and a communal mission serving together. These are five tools to keep leading each other towards Jesus. And so I kind of changed the direction now. At the start of 2023, where is God calling you deeper into His presence? Where is Jesus asking you, welcoming you to a closer, more intimate relationship with Him? Where is He inviting you to be transformed, to look and transform and be more like Jesus? to have our attitudes and actions changed. If I threw this out to you, be more like Jesus. Change your mind and your actions. It can feel overwhelming. But as the early church gives us the challenge of where in these five is the Holy Spirit leading you into this year, take just a piece at a time. All transformation works bit by bit. Is God challenging you in this year 
to be more about communal celebration, choosing of joy more, inviting you to when the songs are being sung on a Sunday morning, maybe you're not a hand raiser type, but the Holy Spirit is calling you, be vulnerable in my presence. Lift your hands as a sign of surrender. Maybe you're not a big singer. I am a terrible singer. It has covered many conversations, but that to sing loudly and to declare with joy who I am and what I'm doing. Maybe it is the sharing of testimonies, of just sharing with others what God has done and doing. It's not just your story of salvation, but it's the story of each week that God's getting you through, sharing that testimony with others. Maybe for you it is communal study. And maybe you've never started your year with a plan to read through Scripture, a Bible reading plan. We live in the greatest era of all time of Bible reading and comprehension. We have more access to the Bible and more tools to do it with. We are also in the last 200 years the most biblically illiterate generation. There's something there. But maybe God is calling you to take a concrete plan this year of I'm going to read through all of the New Testament this year. I'm going to read through the whole Bible this year or in two years. I'm going to read a psalm every day this year. Make a plan. Stick with it. Share it with someone else. I'm going to read six books this year that show me more about what God is doing in my life. If you want, we can help you. We'll give you resources towards that. You can find some in the lobby. You can find a bunch at penningtonag.church. You can see that on our resources page. Maybe join a small group that you haven't yet and study scripture together. Maybe God is calling you to a transformation in prayer. That you need to practice confession and repentance to another human being. What would that look like for you? Maybe you need to practice silence and solitude. And this year, I'll spend 10 minutes every morning doing nothing but sitting and listening. Maybe it's support and just being in community. And you can join a small group. You can go through growth track, start serving on a team here at the church, get connected and get knowing other people. Or lastly, maybe it is about the communal mission. And maybe you don't give regularly to kingdom builders. You don't have a plan for what that looks like. Maybe God's speaking to you this year a financial goal, a resource goal, a commitment of what you're going to give and support. Or you're going to say, this year I'm going to be at all 12 service projects this year. I'm going to be at each and every one of them. I'm going to participate in all of that. What is God calling you to in your mission? This is the perfect time for new choices and decisions. The lifelong process of becoming more like Jesus through our individual and communal choices. I want to close with this. Romans chapter 7, verses uh, verses 18 through 20. Paul writes this letter to a church he's never been to. 
and he's now an older minister. He's planted about a dozen churches. He's written at this point what will become almost a third of the New Testament through his letters and his correspondence. He's battled for the gospel. He's written long theological truths about Jesus and his resurrection. And yet he writes this letter to a church he's never been to. And in Romans 7, he has this little paragraph that's about him not settling on where he is in his relationship with Jesus. That he writes to them that even at this point of his life, he's still doing things that he knows Jesus wouldn't do. He's still not doing the call that Jesus has for him. He writes it like this. And I know that nothing good lives in me. That is, in my sinful nature, I want to do what's right, but I can't. I want to do what's good, but I don't. I don't want to do what is wrong. I do it anyway. But if I do what I don't want to do, I'm not really the one doing wrong. It's sin living in me that does it. I want to be the type of follower of Jesus that in my last years of life, in my 70s, 80s, 90s, however many years God gives me, if I'm following Jesus for a dozen years or for 50 years, I want to still be able to say, I'm not done discovering more of Jesus in my life. I am not done inviting the Holy Spirit to transform me, to be more like him. That in no year is it my year to settle. It is always my year to press and push and discover more of Jesus. To be a church, a communal church, that is not just about reaching people outside of our four walls to know Jesus, to come and have a relationship with him, but as a church that looks at each and every sister and brother in the room and says, how can we spur each other on to more works of Christ Jesus? How can we spur each other on to discover more of his love and grace in our lives? If you'll stand with me in prayer at the close. I'm not going to invite you forward this Sunday, but as the worship team plays a final song, I'm going to ask you to just pray a prayer of examination and commitment. Caitlin's favorite passage of scripture is Psalm 139, inviting the Lord God to examine us, to draw out anything that's not of him, to examine our hearts and to search us, to point out anything that offends him and to draw us to his love and everlasting life. As the worship team leads, take a moment and invite the Holy Spirit to examine us this morning. Where can we be growing more like Jesus? Where are we still? Nothing like Jesus. And then make a decision. Maybe a small decision today, maybe a big decision. What is a formational practice God is calling you to this year in order to take a step closer in the relationship with Jesus?